Hey, we're in the book of Jude. In addition to being an awesome Beatles song, it's also a book at the very end of the New Testament. So if you got your Bible with you and you want to open there today, it's right before Revelation, the very last book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we've got books in the back there on the cart. You're welcome to take one of those Bibles and take it home with you as our gift to you. Hey, since it is, Jude is a really short book. And, uh, you know, in the song, not the, not the Beatles song, but in the New Testament song, you know, you've got the books in the New Testament and you almost skip right over Jude. It's first and second and third John, Jude and Revelation, right? You just like roll right by it. It is really short, but because it's short, it's a, it's a book you can really get your fingers around in a pretty brief amount of time. You can go pretty deep. And so we want to challenge you to go deeper into the book of Jude over the next month as we're studying this book together. So to do that, I want to challenge you to get on Right Now Media. And so many of you know that our church is utilizing Right Now Media, which is basically a, a host of thousands of video-based Bible studies. And on the Highland Church of Christ channel on Right Now Media, you can access a training post that we have put together on the book of Jude. We're going to put a new training post each week up after the sermon on Sunday. So this training post is actually already there. It's called Jude Going Deeper, week number one. And so we would love for you to, to do that training post. It includes a video, it includes a PDF document that you can print out and lay beside you as you're studying through the book of Jude over the next month. And I, I, we really think that this will help you to grow in your faith. You know, a lot of research indicates that, you know, the thousands of things churches do to try to draw people closer to Christ, the people who are actually growing in Christ are the people who read their Bibles. Okay, so this is a tool to help you read your Bible this week. As you saw on that first slide, if you're not on Right Now Media yet and you're our guest, not even a member, that's great. All you got to do to get on Right Now Media is text right now HCC to 41411, and then you'll get information on how to, to walk through that. So try this out this week and over the next month as we're walking through the book of Jude. Let us know about how the experience goes. We just want to help you to be reading your Bible and growing closer to Jesus as a result. All right, so let's look at the book of Jude, starting the first verses of Jude, Jude verse one. Here we read. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Jesus had a couple of brothers. Now, I mean, I guess in some sense, he's got a lot of brothers, right? But he had a couple of biological brothers, James being one of those brothers. And James is a leader in the early church. And because of that, he gets a big, long book in the New Testament. It's five chapters long. It's called the book of James, right? And his brother Jude just barely gets his stuff in there. It's only 25 verses, just 25 measly verses. And in fact, the book of Jude is maybe the most debated book in the New Testament, debated as to whether it should be included or not. The problem is that Jude quotes a bunch of books that are not in the Bible. He quotes books like Enoch and the Testament of Moses. And if you're going to open your older New Testaments, you're not going to find those books in there. And so that kind of made us skeptical about whether Jude should really be included in the Holy Bible. I mean, come on. But Second Peter quotes nearly all of Jude. And so Jude is, he's saved by Second Peter. And I'm really glad that he is saved by Second Peter because his words really speak to today's church. And I think what are profound ways. 
Origen, who was an early church father years ago, he said this about Jude. He said, Jude wrote a letter of a few lines, it's true, but filled with powerful words of heavenly grace, heavenly grace. The funny thing is, heavenly grace is really, is really kind of the issue in Jude. You know, maybe the grace isn't the issue itself, but the, the issue is what children of God do with the grace of God. Specifically, this book is about those in the church who pervert the grace of our God. And it revolves largely around sexual immorality, which definitely applies to our world today. We live in this hyper-sexualized world, and it applies to the church today. But it's also raising a lot bigger questions about obedience to Jesus, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and what Jude calls in verse 3, the faith. The faith. But I think it really hinges on what we think about as a church, the grace of God. What is grace? You know, grace is one of those kind of tricky words that you can be using grace, that word in a conversation with a friend, both of you are using that same word and you mean two really different things, but you're kind of passing by each other like this. In Jude, in his, his 25 verses, in some ways, he's like a summary of what grace really is. And it, he's kind of looking at grace from a different angle than Paul does in a lot of his letters, kind of standing at a different vantage point and looking at grace. So, so what is it? A few weeks ago, Lindsay, and you heard this, Lindsay lost both of her grandmothers in the same week. They both passed away. And so we were in, we were in Texas for a while, and I did both of her grandmothers funerals. And, um, you know, what occurs to me is that at a funeral, our vision of grace crystallizes and becomes very, very clear. You hear it in the songs that we choose to sing at funerals, songs like what? Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. You know, grace is, is inextricably linked to salvation, which is something that we imagine God has done for us. It's a gift. It's something he really did in the past. He saved, he did this for me, a wretch like me. Um, a couple months ago, my, my boys and I found a dead bird in the yard and it was really their first encounter with something dead. And so uh, they don't know a lot about that. They had a lot of questions about what's gonna happen with this dead bird. And what I wasn't gonna tell them was that it's gonna be in the trash can is what's gonna happen with this dead bird, right? And um, so Noble says, uh, this is all he knows about death from based on what his dad goes to do sometimes is that when you die, you have a funeral. So he wanted to have a bird funeral. So I said, okay, so I dig a hole for this bird. We bury the bird in the ground. And then it seems like since this is a funeral, we need to do what? We need to sing. Only song I could think of was I'll Fly Away. deeply ironic. That is a good go-to funeral song, flying away to that celestial shore, God's celestial shore. Or what about the song, Blessed, Blessed Assurance? Right? Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You know, Jesus is, is, is mine and, and his grace is about my glory divine. The grace that we preach and we sing at funerals is this grace of salvation of that moment when Christ, as Jude says, will present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. <clears throat> and that's really the song Jude wants to sing. 
He says this in verse 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. You know, he wants to, to, you know, cue up the key of C and Fabrician to come bellowing in, blessed assurance. I mean, that's what he wants to say. I don't know if blessed assurance is in the key of C, but that sounded very musical. You know, he wants to sing about this grace that God has provided us, secured for us by the death of Jesus Christ. He wants to, he wants to sing about salvation. That's the letter he wants to write. But you can sense that's not the letter he ends up writing. You know, he feels compelled to write this different letter. And I'm not sure what the, you know, the song would be for this other letter that he writes. But in this letter, these 25 verses, Jude is not denying that God's grace culminates in your salvation. The whole letter is moving towards this moment when Jesus presents you before his glorious presence. I mean, that's where it, the letter ends. That's where it's heading towards. But what he's saying is, if the only sermon about grace you ever hear is the sermon at the funeral, and if ever, the only songs about grace you ever sing are the funeral songs, then you are missing something that is really important about the grace of God. And if you miss it, like Jude's church, what happens is you end up perverting the grace of God. You see that in verse 4? They've perverted the grace of God. Notice those last, last two words of God. Can we throw that up on the screen? The grace of God. Let's see. There it comes. Whose grace is it? It's God's. Right? It's not my grace. It's not something I've achieved for myself. It's not something I've accomplished. It's his. And that really cautions how flippantly we talk about grace. Like grace is something I have. It's mine. I got it. When I was baptized in those waters, it became mine. And that's a problem for Jude's readers. They think that God's grace is just an inheritance, which it is. But apparently they have forgotten that, that story about the son who takes his inheritance and wastes it prematurely. Okay. And the better way to think about this line, the grace of God is that grace is defined by who God is. In other words, it's the grace of God in that it is like God, or it resembles God, or it is based on God's character. That's how it's the grace of God. If that's true, let me flesh that out with you. What picture comes to mind of God when you pray to God? You know, who do you imagine is on the other end of that, you know, heavenly phone call, picking up that heavenly phone to, to hear your prayer? Who do you picture in your mind? Um, maybe like me, you kind of have this picture of this old fella. He's in overalls. He's got a beard. You know, he's sitting on the front porch of some old country store like you'd find in Middle Tennessee. And he's, he's playing chess with some friends. He's drinking a Dr. Pepper there. He's got bifocals, gold rim bifocals. Just a nice, good old fella. Jude pictures somebody very different. And he challenges us to think of God very differently. He says this in verse 5. You already know all this. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. You know, that's a different God. That, that is not a God whose grace is just passive forgiveness that I have. You know, it's not a, a front porch of the country store kind of God or kind of grace. 
You know, the, the God he wants us to imagine is this holy and infinite and powerful God who both saves salvation and destroys, right? That the great desire of that gracious God is that you would live with him in his glorious presence for all eternally. And yet the New Testament is consistent on this. That same God who wants that for you will also judge the living and the dead. And that's why Jude keeps talking about those like in verse 7 who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And those who are in danger and need to be saved in verse 23 by snatching them from the fire. Now, if, if when you prayed, your vision of God was of this old fellow with overalls sipping a Dr. Pepper on the front porch of this country store, but behind him, that country store was burning to the ground, you know, your prayer would have a different sense of urgency, of attentiveness, You'd really want to know what the grace of God has brought you out of, set you apart for, and what it's doing to you, right? If that was your picture of God. Some of you are getting really excited right now. You heard that word fire and you kind of peeked up. Is Eric going there? You know, Eric's not much of a hellfire or brimstone preacher, but maybe hallelujah, he's taking us back to the good old days, right? You getting kind of worked up here. You know, churches of Christ have a kind of a curious relationship with grace, when we started in the late 1700s and early 1800s, we were the movement in the world that wanted the whole of the world to experience the wonderful and blessed grace of God. I mean, we were the movement that set apart all kinds of other things, set those aside so that we could focus on spreading the grace of Christ to the whole world. But that project ran into hiccups. People are difficult. And we kind of got scared of grace because of that. And so we swung in the other direction. Right? We swung away from grace. And some of you grew up in churches where grace was a dirty word. I mean, you didn't say the word grace. And instead, you, you kind of grew up in these churches like I did where we nominated ourselves as God's circuit judges. And we went around judging who was inside the kingdom and who was outside. And fortunately for us, most were outside. It made taking attendance easier. Right? And you better believe we took attendance. And if you weren't there on Sunday morning because you had the flu, Deacon Joe shows up on Sunday afternoon to remind you how hot the fires of hell are. You think your fever's bad. <laughs> but then we swung back into grace. And so many of you can remember those first sermons you heard among churches of Christ about grace. And it was like coming up for fresh air after you had been nearly drowning. And let me tell you, this is a church of grace. Our leaders here are committed to you experiencing, like Jude describes, the mercy and peace and love of God when you come to this place. That's what we want you to leave here with. But here's what Jude wants to know. That's what he wants to know. What do you do in a church of grace when someone's sleeping around? What do you do in a church of grace when a husband's beating his wife? And what do you do in a church of grace when you've got this guy who's just a racist? What do you say to somebody who's medicating with alcohol every single night or whose temper is so short or the endless gossip? What do you say to the one who's caught up in pornographic addiction? What do you say to the one who's cheating at her business partners or cheating on tests? You know, what does a gracious church do? And Jude's church is so gracious, they do nothing. And Jude says, that's not actually grace. 
look at verse four again. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about you long or was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you, and they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. You know, many of us are more familiar with Romans 6, which is this magisterial chapter on God's grace that you and I experience in our baptism in the waters behind us. And what Paul's saying about grace in Romans 6 is that God's grace doesn't move backwards. It moves you forwards. You know, you don't, you don't go from, from um, life to death. You move from death to life. And here in Jude, we catch this, this glimpse with a lot more clarity about what grace really is. It's not a license to sin. That'd be moving backwards. The grace of God is the power that moves unholy people and an unholy church towards a holy God and prepares them to stand before his presence. And so the most gracious church would not be the one that does nothing. The most gracious church would be the one that helps you to move in the direction of God's holiness. Okay. But do I want that help? Or do I wish the church would just mind its business? Uh, Sociologists have a helpful word here. It's not a word in Jude. It's a word my dad turned me on two years ago. I'll tell you about that. The word is voluntary association. And to understand voluntary association, think of, think of like um, the school PTA. Think about your book club, uh, your kids' t-ball team, your grandkids' t-ball team. All of those are voluntary associations, which, mean we, which means we associate with them how? Voluntarily. And so if our t-ball team goes sideways, you know, if our kid's not getting the playing time we like, we're not happy with the coach, we, we associate with another team voluntarily. And Jude is seeing this group in his church that has become convinced that because of the grace of God, their relationship to Jesus Christ is not a calling, like he says in verse one. It's more of like a, a voluntary association. And so because of that, there's no strings attached. There's no expectations. And if there were, well, then that wouldn't be grace, would it? You know, my dad, who turned me on to that word and preached for 30 years, he discovered that term, voluntary association, shortly after he retired from preaching, and it made sense of his 30 years of ministry. And he said, he says, Eric, it was like a light went off. You know, the, the great challenges we had in getting people involved or getting people to volunteer or, or really more often getting people to change their behavior. Well, the whole reason it was hard is because they were there voluntarily. There was 11 other churches on Houston Levy. They could be at voluntarily, right? If it went sideways at your church. And that's why Jude matters. You got from the first line of Jude, we see there's nothing voluntary about the grace of Christ. You know, in other words, it is not about what you want or don't want. It's about what the grace of Christ insists on in your life. Jude says it like this. He says, Jude not a servant, he says, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. You'll notice I made a little edit there. You've got to be concerned anytime your associate preacher starts crossing words out of his Bible. You know, speaking of voluntary associations, am I right? 
the word is actually not servant, although it can be translated that way. It's slave, doulos. The reason that the NIV and other English translations steer away from the language of slavery is because of the American history of slavery, which I absolutely understand. And it makes us really cautious about those words, and it's difficult to use them without all kinds of other issues raised. Makes sense. But think with me for a second about the difference between a servant and a slave. Just think with me. A servant serves what? Voluntarily. They may get paid for it, and if they choose not to serve anymore, they may not get paid. There may be consequences, but the service of a slave is not voluntary, right? They belong to their master. And interestingly, that's not just how Jude introduces himself. That's how Paul introduces himself in Romans, Galatians, Philippians. That's how Paul instructs Timothy to behave as a slave of God. The language of slavery for the children of God is actually rife throughout the New Testament. And that says something to some of us who feel like our relationship to Christ and therefore his body is frankly kind of voluntary. I mean, I'm kind of in, I'm kind of out. Not Jude, he's all in. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. Why? because the grace of God got hold of him. You know, how many of you would be willing to say that your brother is the Messiah? I mean, think about it. It would be easier to say that some stranger is the Messiah than your brother who you know. You know your brother's baggage. And you've got Jesus's brothers, James and Jude, these four brothers at least, who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ in his own life because they knew their brother. And 20 to 30 years later, you've got Jude, who's now an old man who says without reservation that he is not only his brother's brother, he is his brother's slave. The grace of God did not change Jesus, his brother, it changed who? Jude, right? And so does the grace of God change you and me? And what's the grace of God doing to us? What's it doing to this church? The author of Hebrews says it like this, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good, everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says it like this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Jude says it like this. To those who have been called who are loved in God the Father and who are kept for Jesus Christ. The grace of God will change you. Now you may voluntarily choose to follow Jesus, but once you have been baptized in these waters, like our sister is about to be behind me, it is no longer voluntary, it is a calling. And that calling is fueled by the love of God. It is ensured by the keeping power of God. And a few verses later, he says this about God's keeping power. He says these about these rebellious angels. He has kept, same word, in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God's power to keep you. You want to be on the right side of that power. And next week, we're going to dive into that. But what, you, what I want you to hear is that by God's grace, you have not become his volunteer. You have become his slave, a slave who is being kept for Jesus Christ. By his grace, your life is not for you. 
Your life is not for your husband. Your life is not for your wife. Your life is not for your kids, as great as they may be. You are being kept for Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And what he began in you, he will finish. I think this idea of grace begins to, you know, narrow down for us in reading Jude. And we see that the grace of God really is this power that is shaped by God's character. And God's not just a good old boy. You know, God is the God of both mercy and judgment. And we see that most fully on the cross of Jesus Christ, in which our mercy is secured by an act of great judgment, in which Jesus is judged for my sins and your sins. And it's that sin that separates us from God but God in his grace moves us from separation into righteousness and his grace then moves us from righteousness into relationship and from relationship into glory. Grace is moving you along and as it's moving you in that direction, preparing you for that day when you do stand before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, it has to do something to you in that process. And what we see is that it is burning away the dross. Right? It is purifying you. It is, it is cleansing you. But often it's because of that, because of the heat of the grace of God is uncomfortable that we resist it. We're like this child who won't take their medicine, even though it's the medicine that makes us better. And we end up resisting the one who is calling and loving and keeping us, our only sovereign, the Lord, as Jude says. You remember that second verse? We'll end with this, the blessed assurance. And God, after the, the foretastes of glory divine, the heir of salvation, after we are born of the spirit and washed in his blood, then there's what? Do you remember? There's perfect submission. Perfect submission. Perfect submission. Slaves kept for Jesus Christ by the grace of God. That's a gracious church in perfect submission. Let me end with the blessing of Jude as he ends his short letter in 24. To him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To our only God and Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's stand and sing. This is my desire.